The following presentation by Monument Wealth Management, LLC, is intended for general information purposes only. Please listen to additional important disclosures at the end of this presentation. Welcome to Off the Wall, a podcast aimed at helping you answer the question, what is the point of my wealth? And what steps can I take to make that vision a reality? With over 25 years of combined experience in wealth management, David Armstrong, co-founder of Monument Wealth Management, and Jessica Gibbs, vice president and partner at Monument, are skilled at helping people think through these challenging but important questions. Interested in learning more? Connect with us on Instagram, at Monument Wealth, and follow along at MonumentWealthManagement.com. Now, here are your hosts, Dave and Jessica. Okay, we're back with our last episode of Off the Wall for 2022. It's hard to believe we've been doing this now for two years. We started this January 2021. So two years of this project under our belt, Steve. It's pretty good. I know it's pretty good. (laughs) And for those of you who hate listening to my voice as much as I hate listening to my own voice, I'm a little scratchy this morning. I lost my voice yesterday. (laughs) It's magically back, thankfully. But thankfully. uh, yeah, there you go. So Yeah. Well, we, we have a killer guest, though, to round out 2022. Someone who hopefully listeners to the podcast will recognize his voice because he's been on before. We are really pleased to welcome back Bob Stein, who is Deputy Chief Economist at First Trust Advisors. So, hi, Bob. Welcome back. Thank you, Jessica. It's a pleasure being here today. Yeah. Actually, you get the award for having the most single most downloaded episode of all of ours. It's number one. In really? Downloads. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For guests. Wow. For guests podcasts. Yeah. yeah. I'm pleasantly surprised. (laughs) So if you haven't listened to it, yeah, we've had Bob on the podcast back in June 2022, and he shared his predictions for the economic and political landscape. And so if you haven't listened to that, there's still a lot of it that's definitely relevant. But obviously, things have changed in the past six months, evolved on the political landscape in particular. So we really wanted to have Bob back to give his, his take on where he sees things going in politics and in the economy. So Dave, why don't you kick it off? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, now that the midterms are obviously behind us, I just wanted to spend a few seconds on that because it's an example of one of those low probability events happening. The 80% probable outcome still has the 20% chance of, of not actually happening. And, and I always like to use the example of Super Bowl 54, which really makes me feel old, by the way, back in February of 2020. And you'll, you'll remember that Super Bowl because it's probably the last time anybody would double dip in the guacamole right before COVID happened. But the San Francisco 49ers, with seven minutes remaining in the fourth quarter, they were up 20 to 10, and they had a 90% chance of winning. And the Chiefs actually went on to score 21 unanswered points and won in the final seven minutes of the Super Bowl, 31-20. So it's one of those examples of, hey, 90% chance of winning with seven minutes left. You know, so politics like football are investing. They have the high probability events that just sometimes don't pan out as expected. So, you know, coming back to the midterm results— with an unpopular Democratic president, you know, polling, not my opinion, record inflation, increasing violent crime across the country, and the mess at the border. The Republican Party actually lost a seat in the Senate and barely captured the House. Just kind of wondering why. Great question, Dave. So let's talk about the House, and let's then talk about the Senate. The House, what happened, I actually thought the Republicans would gain about 25 or so seats in the U.S. House. It depends upon when we had our previous podcast, and I was making different forecasts throughout the year, but about 25 plus seats in the U.S. House. The Republicans actually did as well or slightly better than most polls indicated they would in terms of the national popular vote for the House. 
Okay. Which was kind of odd. I mean, if I knew for a certainty before the House vote in early November or the House elections in early November exactly what the popular vote would have been, I would have still said about 25 seat gain for the Republicans in the House. What happened is that their support was very inefficient. Think about Hillary Clinton in 2016. She won the popular vote by 2.1 percentage points over Donald Trump. And she lost the election because she lost in the Electoral College. Well, the Republicans had something like that happen to them. So here's what the Republicans did. They did much better in rural areas than they've even did in 2020 or 2018 or 2016. Much better. But these are districts that were going to win anyhow. They also did much better in many areas around the country with a high concentration of Hispanic voters. I'll give you an example. When I was a kid, it was normal for the Republican Party to get about 5%, maybe 10% in a good year of the vote in the Bronx. They got 25% this past year. 25% in the Bronx? I mean, if you had told me 10 years ago that the Republicans would be getting 25% of the vote in the Bronx, I would assume they would be clearly getting 70% nationwide. (laughs) So I have a quick question. When you say more votes, is this like more people voted that there were higher voter turnout no percentage or of the vote. percentage in terms of like independents who could swing either way they chose to vote for I the mean, Republican in Party. In terms of the rural areas? I'm just curious in terms of like... I mean the percentage of the vote, of not, the, vote not total. the share okay. of the total population voting. So, you know, when I say the Republicans, I think they won the National House popular vote by roughly three percentage points and they were supposed to win by two and a half. So they actually did better. Like, but that, I'm not talking about the share of the total population. I'm talking about the share of the vote. So they did better in rural areas. They did better in areas around the country, especially urban areas, with high concentrations of Hispanic voters. Bronx, Bill Pascrell's district in New Jersey, Hudson County, he normally wins by 30 points or so. He won by about 15, but he still won. So the Republicans ran up their victories in rural areas around the country did better in many Hispanic districts around the country, but they lost anyhow because they're still not the majority in those districts. So they had an inefficient distribution of their vote, if you will. So whereas normally a three-point win would translate into a gain of 25 seats, they gained 10 seats instead. So they shouldn't be too dissatisfied with the performance in the House. It was just inefficiency. And that's something that can change over time with how the district lines are drawn. For the Senate, the bottom line is candidate quality mattered even more than I thought it would. So going into the elections, I thought the Republicans had dominated a series of what were essentially duds for many key states around the country, in particular New Hampshire, Georgia, Arizona, Pennsylvania, people who were novice candidates, and they had better alternatives that they decided not to go with or who decided not to run. I thought in the end, however, given the high inflation, given the issues at the border, given that the Democrats were the incumbent party, that fundamentals would beat candidate quality. And I was wrong about that. Candidate quality in the end mattered even more than I thought it would. And so it was really just one big mistake that affected many races for the Republican side. And so if you put together the five key races that the Republicans really had a good shot at, but ended up losing... Nevada, Arizona, Pennsylvania, Georgia, New Hampshire. These were all Trump acolytes. They were all candidates. Four of them were novices. One was not a novice. But all five of them were strong supporters of President Trump. And it really shows that in key states around the country that President Trump is toxic. 
And in each of these places, or in several of these places, you had other candidates who were not Trump supporters, had not been endorsed by him, who outperformed these Senate candidates. So, for example, in the state of Georgia, Herschel Walker, who, by the way, sounds like he played about seven too many years in the NFL. Right, I know. Herschel Walker. Brian Kemp, the governor, won re-election easily, surprisingly easily. Well, the governor of New Hampshire is a Republican, won re-election, going away. It was a landslide. Okay. In the state of Arizona, you had the one candidate for statewide office was for the treasurer position. She was the only one of the candidates not endorsed by President Trump. She won. Okay. All the other candidates were Trump acolytes. Okay. Blake Masters for the Senate, Carrie Lake for the governorship. They lost. Okay. So it doesn't take much here to put two and two together. So do you think this election was a rebuke of President Trump? Yes. The Democrats were very successful in terms of running their campaign. Usually a midterm election is a referendum on the incumbent. They turned it into a choice election. You're with Biden or you're with Trump. And by making it a choice election, they increased the ability of their candidates to win. If it had simply been a referendum on Joe Biden his performance, given his approval rating down at roughly 42%, I think we would have seen a normal midterm election cycle where the Republicans gained four, maybe even five seats in the U.S. Senate. But that didn't happen, obviously, because they turned it into a choice election instead. Right. And was some of that attributable to the Democrats' strategy during the primaries to throw some money and advertising behind the candidates who were Trump candidates? I heard that that was happening. Absolutely. I'll give you you the state of Pennsylvania where the Democrats put a lot of money into getting the Republicans to nominate Doug Mastriano. Doug Mastriano would be a solid Republican in the state of Mississippi. (laughs) Okay. Okay. He would win. Okay. But he's not right for a purple state like Pennsylvania. And so Mastriano was a big drag on the Republican ticket. I think if the Republicans had nominated a mainstream Pennsylvania-type Republican for that governor slot. Remember, the gubernatorial election's at the top of the ticket. I think that would have given Dr. Oz a fighting chance, even though Dr. Oz was also a Trump acolyte, but not quite as strong a flavor as Mastriano. So since we're talking about Trump, not to hold you to this, but I'm curious to see if your opinion has evolved. So when you were on the podcast with us in June, you gave Trump a 70% chance of running for president in 2024. And you said if he runs, he has a 70% chance of getting nominated. If he doesn't run, you said Ron DeSantis would be the front runner. So obviously, we know Trump has announced his candidacy. And we also know that Ron DeSantis did extremely well in his reelection run. So I'm curious to see if your thoughts about the Republican ticket, Republican candidacies has changed at all from June. Yeah. And before you answer that question, I just want you to know that I'm still undecided about whether or not I'm running in 2024. <laughs> so factor that in. I'm, I could be the wild card here in your answer. But so. I will keep that in okay. mind as I discuss the Republican race. Okay. So Donald Trump has declared that he will run. So he's 100% in now. So normally you would think, well, if I thought he's 70% likely to get the nomination, if he runs, then now that he's 100%, it should be 70%. But my view has changed because Ron DeSantis has done so well. And and in particular, because Trump-related candidates did so poorly in this midterm election cycle, a lot of Republicans who previously supported him or maybe didn't like him, but were willing to vote for him, are kind of shaking their heads and thinking, you know what? His time has passed. So I think he has 
about a 35 to 40 percent chance of getting that nomination at this point. I think Ron DeSantis has a 40 to 45 percent chance of getting the nomination, just slightly above. Okay, combined, they have 80 percent. It's one or the other. Okay, and I'll discuss somebody else in a in a minute. I might have discussed them last time. So combined, they have about 80 percent. If for whatever reason Donald Trump, he's kind of mercurial. He, might kind of make sudden decisions. If for whatever reason he decides at some point to withdraw from the race, then I think DeSantis's odds go very quickly up to roughly 70% because the Republicans traditionally pick the front runner. That's just the way they are. So the one other candidate I think is being totally overlooked by most people is Mike Pompeo, former Secretary of State, very bright man. The debates on the primary side will probably start mid to late summer. And if he can perform well in those debates, he'll be able to raise money and perform well. He seems acceptable to Trump people and acceptable to mainstream conservatives, which is kind of where DeSantis is. So if Trump decides to withdraw whatever and DeSantis fumbles, I think Pompeo would be the natural alternative to DeSantis. Do you really see Trump, like, if he saw, like, his numbers weren't good, do you really see him withdrawing? Yeah, Trump you really hates do? to lose. He does not want So he want just to... doesn't want that finality of going to an election. Correct. And okay. he'll make some excuse, whether it's his personal health. He'll make up some reason to withdraw because he loves to be the center of attention. But he really loves to be the center of attention when he can make a plausible case that he won or succeeded at something. He does not want to appear to fail in public. And so he could say, you know what, the establishment has it in for me. The system has been rigged against me. Even if I ran, I can't get the nomination anymore. So I'm just, yeah, I'm just going to sit it out and let you guys figure it out yourselves. I'm not saying that's a high likelihood, but it's really, to me, it's plausible given his personality. Yeah. It just feels like even that, I'm like, is he even willing to say now that he's officially announced that he, yeah. oh, I don't want to do this anymore. I mean, he hasn't done anything yet. Yeah. He just announced. <laughs> yeah. He raised it. a lot of money. But. Right. Yeah. <laughs> For himself. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and I know we'll get to some of the, the economic aspects of all of this in a, in a few seconds, but I'll pose the question of the exact opposite. What is the likelihood that the ticket looks like Biden-Harris on the Democrat side? Okay. So I only think there's about a one in three chance Biden will run again. Okay, I have an easy time seeing him being president two years from now, six years and a month from now, not so much. So I think in the end, he'll announce early next year. He'll probably announce that he won't run for re-election. This is not a guarantee. I wouldn't be shocked if he ran again, but I'm leaning in the direction that he won't. Okay, So that'll really open up the Democratic side, right? You know, so... Normally, you would think the vice president would take that place, but I think she'd be very vulnerable for multiple reasons. Gavin Newsom from California is already talking about running from her home state, same fundraising base. Yeah, oh, same yeah, section point, of the state. Right. Mm-hmm. So if he's talking that way, I'm sure others are thinking that. And so I think she'd have multiple challengers and she'd have a real hard time. She had very ample financing for her run for the presidency in 2020. She was out before Iowa because she ran a horrible campaign. She hired her sister, I think, as a campaign manager. She would need to completely overhaul multiple aspects of her political operation in order to get the presidential nomination on the Democratic side. And I don't think she's capable of an overhaul that would push her to the top of the ticket. 
Newsom's interesting to me because he's a candidate that seems popular just when you listen to people, they say like, oh yeah, Newsom would be a natural person to run. But he's also a governor that barely survived a recall. Like, where does his stardom come from when, you know, barely survives a recall? You know, he was reelected resoundingly. Yeah, I know, which is interesting because how do you get resoundingly reelected when you barely survive a recall? Well, the recall election is a little bit different. The recall format in California, if I remember from when Gray Davis was taken out, it's structured to really hinder the incumbent. Like if you get to the point, if you get enough signatures that the recall election occurs, there are two parts. Number one, referendum. Do you want to keep the guy in office longer? Okay. And people narrowly voted yes. Okay. However, that person, if they're recalled, cannot appear on the list of candidates that would take his place. So it's kind of weird. I, I've always made this contention. Everybody remembers that Gray Davis, the California governor, was recalled. He lost that first thing. Do you want Gray Davis to continue, essentially, is the question. Right. No was the majority. Okay? And then Schwarzenegger got the most votes of all the alternative candidates. But the rule is the person you recalled can't be on that list okay? because it wouldn't seem to make sense. I still contend you know, from 20 years ago. If they had the recall, but then Gray Davis had been capable of being on that other list, because every other Californian, literally millions, could have been on that list if they got enough signatures, except for Gray Davis. If Gray Davis had been on that list, he would have gotten more votes than anybody else. Because the first part is just a referendum. Do you like the guy in office or gal in office? No, we don't. Okay. So he was recalled. But if he had been in the second slot, he would have beaten Schwarzenegger, I believe. But he couldn't have been. So, Gavin, it was just a pure referendum. Remember, elections are ultimately about choices. Newsom or somebody else, okay? So the, the recall election, where, which was close, was Newsom or any of these other flavors. So everybody who possibly could have preferred a different flavor would have voted against Newsom, right? But in a real election, like the primaries or a general election in the U.S., it's one or the other. You don't get to say no to that one and then get to choose among 32 other flavors. In other words, I I think people are reading too much in to his recall top line performance in assessing how popular he is in California. He is, in fact, very popular relative to any other individual politician. So here's a wild card scenario for you. I just imagined this, given what you said about Harris and Newsom. What about a ticket that is Biden, Newsom, they win, and Biden resigns the presidency? Will never happen. No. Okay. Will never happen. If Biden runs, then Vice President Harris will be his running mate. Oh, really? Okay. End of story. Really? Okay. To, to not go with Vice President Harris would anger women voters in the Democratic Party. It would anger black voters in the Democratic Party and would also say that I had the choice of any politician in America to make as my running mate. And I made the wrong choice. That's why George Bush never dumped Dan Quayle. It's an admission of failure. That's why Trump did not dump Mike Pence. It's an admission of a failure in one of the most important decisions you could possibly make. He will never do that. If he runs, it's with Harris. 100 percent. Okay. Interesting. Unless she kills over. <laughs> right. That's the yeah. only scenario when it w- yeah. wouldn't occur. 
So with that as sort of our political opinion backdrop, what does that mean for, I'm just going to rattle some things off and you pick whatever you want to talk about, but taxes, infrastructure, tech, green energy, inflation, like for the next two years, does what just happened in the midterms and any prediction for the future, does that have any, do you think that increases the likelihood that anything gets done there on any one of those five things I rattled off or anything else I didn't rattle off? Okay, in terms of taxes, if the Democrats had somehow managed to keep the House, it's possible that the Democrats would have had an additional bite at the apple because they have one, the Senate was the big impediment, but they have one extra Senate seat now, right? Okay. And the switch with Kristen Sinema really doesn't change anything. Right, which is news as of this morning. Exactly. So, and she's going to continue to caucus with the Democrats. So it's, it's less than meets the eye. So in terms of taxes, they would have had a bite at the apple had they kept the house, but they didn't. And so there aren't going to be any tax hikes over the next couple of years. I don't see any additional bills like the Inflation Reduction Act. I don't see an additional infrastructure bill. I think there's going to be a lot of paralysis on Capitol Hill with Republicans spending time on investigations. I'm not pro or con. I'm just, this is how they're going to spend their time looking into various things. And there's not going to be a lot of legislation on new territory, whether it's green energy, whether it's tech, whether it's taxes. Those bills will not get to the president's desk. Do you think that there's anything about the last year with inflation, specifically with, you know, fuel, that could actually create some sort of bipartisan momentum on repealing some regulation or like fixing it a little bit? Last time we talked about how a lot of the energy price issues were a function of leases and things like that. Could any of that change now that maybe the Democrats saw like, wow, this our agenda here really caused issues, whether it was with leases or actual supply and demand? Does any of that get revisited? Not really. Okay. No. I mean, frankly, if you look at the West Texas intermediate crude prices, they're about where they were 12 months ago. We really don't have year ago comparison inflation widespread in the energy sector at this point. My best guess is that the economy will be weaker at the end of next year than it is today, and that energy prices will be lower because of that a year from now than it is today, than they are today. So I think that kind of backdrop is one in which the administration will not feel any pressure to really revisit in any significant way how many leases and operations they're allowing for drilling and and pipelines and things like that. Okay. So, you know, gas prices are way down from where they were even six months ago. Is that a function of a perceived slowdown in the economy? Or is that more a function of supply of coming out of the strategic petroleum reserve? What's what's caused gas prices to come down to locally here around $3? Yeah. Well, it's a combination of things. One is seasonality. Oh, sure. Okay. (laughs) Okay. But uh, it's also because oil prices are down significantly from where they were earlier this year. I remember they peaked like very briefly around 130 or so, I think last January. So they're down from that peak substantially. They're even down from where they were on, on average throughout this year. So that is largely due to a combination of things. A little bit of SPR. I think the SPR gets too much credit. I really just think it's, it, it's related to the weakening economies globally. I mean, the U.S. is going to finish this year having grown real GDP around half a percentage point real GDP. So over and above inflation. China is relatively weak, and I think it will remain relatively weak compared to the last 20, 30 years in China for the foreseeable future. Parts of Europe are already in recession, and they're going to have a very soft economy. 
in part related to energy issues over the course of the next several months. They may have a lingering double, triple dip recession over time, especially with the conflict in between Russia and the Ukraine. So I think it's a combination of those global and geopolitical events reducing oil prices. And that's the main thrust of it. Yeah, I, I think if I go back to when oil was $130 and I am naturally the kind of person who sees something trending in one direction and, and sees a more likelihood of it getting worse and better. Sometimes it just, you know, oh, geez. And so if we were sitting down having this conversation about 130, I'd say like, geez, I really think that there's a really high probability that oil could even go up higher than 130, just forecasting out winter Russia, Europe war, right? Like really decreasing the supply of oil, but the exact opposite thing happened. Is that because supply went up or is it literally because the demand went down and the demand going down was enough to offset the demand going up in Europe? Supply and demand, immediate supply and demand matter. But what also matters are expectations of shifts in supply versus what you previously thought and changes in expectations about future demand. And I think it was really, to a great extent, expectations about future demand that shifted things. So when people realized that the economy was weakening going forward relative to their prior expectations, that reduced demand. Right. Okay. What other things out there on the horizon for the next two years could we see changing in terms of this divided government now? Is there anything that... Yeah, it's divided government. Are you going to have any opportunities for bipartisan cooperation on any issues or is it going to be totally deadlocked? Oh, no, they'll cooperate on certain things over time. They'll complain for a long time about the debt limit issue, but eventually they'll raise it because it has to be raised. And they'll eventually come to some sort of agreement on appropriations. It's just a matter of holdouts and trying to figure out who gets what. But there'll be bipartisan bills sent to the president. But will there be bipartisanship on new economic issues, new ground. Not really. There aren't going to be any major changes to like the energy sector, tech, anything like that. I I don't see that happening in this Congress. That's going to be a little bit of status quo for the next two years? Uh, Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. They'll be at each other's throats, pretty much comparable (laughs) to how they've been. Yeah, no change there. (laughs) Although it's funny because, you know, I have a military background and and one of the things I saw just that went in with the National Defense Authorization Act was the cancellation of the mandatory COVID vaccines. Yeah. And I was joking with one of my friends yesterday. I was like, yeah, so all all the Marines are standing in line talking about, oh, wow, we don't have to get the COVID vaccine anymore as they're standing in line for their mandatory flu shot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. kind of funny, but... I think that's more of a recruiting issue sure. than anything else. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right. So inflation. Any perspectives on inflation? One of the things that I find really interesting about inflation, and this has a lot, this ties back to legislation, is that we saw in, I'm just going to say April of 2020, the peak, I mean, just an astronomical increase in M2 money supply hitting the system, right? I mean, just, and then it tapered down very, very quickly. And I feel like there's a definite, some sort of lag, let's just call it a year and a half for inflation to catch up and kind of match with the reduction in M2. And we're there right now. Are we actually seeing the possibility that inflation could be coming down faster than what the Fed is thinking is going to happen or they're reacting to in terms of interest rates? Okay. So here's my expectation. So we had 7% CPI inflation last year. 
This year, we're going to finish in the vicinity of 7.4, 7.5, something like that. Like end of the calendar year. End of the calendar okay. year for December. So that data will come out in January. I expect, I'm penciling in around four and a quarter percent for next year. So that will be above what the Fed anticipates. So if you want to translate my CPI forecast into the measure that the Fed follows, they follow something called the PCE deflator. You know. So that would be about 4% PCE okay, in my forecast. The Fed's going to have a new forecast that comes out on Wednesday. I expect their forecast for next year to be 3% or lower. Okay, So I'm forecasting more inflation next year than the Fed is anticipating for next year. Okay, But it's going to be down. It's going to be clearly down from the past couple of years. We're starting to run low on that extra M2 money supply measure that the Fed injected into the economy in 2020 and 2021. That's right, because it was 2021 also. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So my expectation for 2024 is that we get to the Fed's 2% target by the end of the year. Because my forecast is also that sometime in 2023, probably late in the year. Now, I, I could be wrong about this. It could be early 2023, could be early 2024. But I think we're, we're going to have a recession starting in the second half of 2023. It's not going to be like the COVID depression where the unemployment rate goes up to 15%. It's not going to be like the, the Great Recession financial panic of 08 and 09. But it's going to be like a, it's going to be a recession like we had in 2001, we had in 1990 and 91, where the unemployment rate goes up around two and a half percentage points, bottom to top. Okay? So that would take us to roughly 6% eventually. And in that environment, I think inflation is going to come down significantly because that will, that will be a sign that the Fed really has tightened up. And if you look at the growth of M2 since February of this year, it's been roughly flat, like literally zero growth. Okay? Some months it's been negative. So I anticipate a reduction in inflation next year, but not quite as much as the Fed anticipates but that we are going to be at the at or very close to maybe even below the Fed's target by the end of 2024. End of 2024. So we're 2 years away, but we are going to get there. Yeah. Yeah, I've just seen some anecdotal evidence. I mean, the housing numbers lag a lot. Everybody knows that. We've been writing about that here. I can't imagine that if we fast forward 8 months from today, like the general lag in the housing data. If we fast forward to 8 months from today, there's no way we're talking about how the housing prices have done anything other than go down, not with mortgage interest rates where they are. Yeah. Just, and there's a lot of you know current anecdotal evidence. Just I saw something on the news the other day about how the Zillow price index, you know, listing prices coming down. And I also saw that you know used car prices have come down a lot, and that's all got to factor into inflation too. Let alone just the expectation of a recession. Yeah. So I focus a lot on housing and. My view is that the housing rents, as counted by the Consumer Price Index and the government's inflation measures, are going to be more resilient, are going to stay higher longer than some of the commentary I've seen out there. In terms of housing prices, I think a year from now, national average home prices will be lower than they are today. They've come down, generally speaking, over the past two or three months, well, actually three months through I think we have data through July, August, September. I think we only have data through September, maybe October at this point. Okay. But we're going to generally see prices, national average basis, okay, not necessarily your home, your neighborhood, national average basis, housing prices in the U.S. will be lower a year from now than they are today. However, and this is really important, 
When people think about falling home prices, they immediately think of the housing bust that we went through from like late 06 to 2011. Because they think five-year period, a national average home prices fell 25% over that period. Half the country, even more, like Fort Myers, Florida, Inland Empire, California, Scottsdale, Arizona, they just like 50% or so, okay? So national average basis with 25%, I do not see anything like that this time around. So I think we're going to drop peak to bottom national average home prices will drop maybe 10%, I think at most. And a few reasons. Number one, you know, prices have gone up a lot relative to rents, but they haven't gone up a lot relative to construction costs. Construction costs are much higher than they were a few years ago. So even though lumber has come down a bit, okay, it's not just lumber and copper pipe and drywall. It's also labor costs. And labor has gone up a lot over the past few years. So relative to construction costs, we're not nearly as overvalued as we were at the peak of the previous housing bubble. And then I look around the country and we had massive overbuilding before the previous bubble. We built around four or five million too many homes around the country. And because of that, when people were fleeing home ownership during that prior housing bubble. And you're talking about like the 2007, eight yeah. type bubble. That's the bubble you're talking yeah, about. Yeah. Right? When people were fleeing home ownership, like, you know, mortgage recess, all that stuff, negative equity, you would think that would be an ideal environment for landlords to jack up rents because people want to become tenants again, right? Okay. But they couldn't. Rents decelerated for two years and then went negative for two years because there were just too many homes around the country. Landlords had no leverage. This time around, we underbuilt housing for the previous decade. We have around one or two million, too few homes around the country. And because of that, rents have accelerated over the past 18 months or so. I think they're going to continue to grow at a fairly rapid rate over the next two years, given the work and calculations I've done. And the increase in rents over the next couple of years are going to put a floor or a threshold under home prices that didn't exist last time around. Because if I'm a landlord and I'm getting more cash flow, more rent generated from my properties, if a potential buyer comes along, I'm going to ask for more money than I otherwise would. Okay, that didn't exist 15 years ago during that housing bust because rents were falling too. Rents were decelerating too. So that threshold didn't exist. Let me give you one more reason that I'm not quite as worried this time around. I know a ton of people who locked in, we all do, who locked in mortgage rates, their mortgage rates, 30-year fixed before this year, 2021, 2020, during COVID, okay? So let's say you're sitting on a mortgage where you're locked in fixed at two and five eighths. Okay, you lose your job during the next recession, okay? Not you, not you yeah, guys. Yeah. We, you. we know, Thank hypothetically. Right. Okay, right, so. yeah. Yeah. But if someone hypothetically with a two and five ace locked in fixed 30 year mortgage loses their job during the next recession, they'll consider going delinquent, maybe even defaulting on their credit card debt. They might even consider it for their car loan. They'll put a meth lab in their basement before they default on that mortgage. Yeah, they're never okay, moving. So yeah. They, yeah. they will resort to criminal activity to pay that mortgage. A mortgage locked in fixed for at two and five days for the next 30 years, yeah. that's an asset, not a liability. I right. mean, you want to keep that mortgage. Especially you on an after-tax basis. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So there's simply no way that these people are going to walk away from those mortgages. They'll put a fentanyl lab in their, in their garage if they have. You see what I mean? They'll work off the book. They'll do whatever they have to do to pay that mortgage. So it's a very different environment. Because the alternative is way more expensive. Yes, yeah, yeah, the rent, uh, you know, an apartment yeah. that's gone up or, or a house that's gone up and then maybe hope to become a homeowner in the future at 6.5% or 4.5%. Oh, you don't want to do that. So the last time around during that housing bust, 
mortgages were resetting to much higher levels and people had deep negative equity. Okay, so this time around, it, it doesn't. So they had, it made sense. It was rational for many people to abandon their house and their mortgage. Okay, use exercise to put option and give it back to the bank. This time around, it makes no sense. So people are going to hold their homes dear and you're not going to see the implosion you saw last time around. That said, yes, national average home prices will be lower than a year from now than they are today. So with so much being driven by housing and cars and the economy and everything that you just said, what is the prospect for home building to actually increase over the next decade? This sounds to me like if I'm a home builder, I'm trying to buy raw land and build houses right now. So I'm going to talk out of both sides of my mouth, but I'm an economist. I'm allowed. Okay. okay yes. So here's the deal. If we go through a recession, as I expect over the next year, I think the number of housing starts will be lower next year than they are this year. They're already lower this year than they were last year. So that's just natural and normal because during a recession, fewer people are buying new homes, et cetera. So totally natural and normal. However, if we've underbuilt housing over the previous decade, when we come out of that recession, okay, and maybe even the tail end of the recession, I think you're going to see a surge in home building that's very powerful, much more powerful than the surge we got in the early stages in 2009 and 2010. Home building remained low and stagnant for multiple years, even after that recession ended, because we had to work off the excess inventory left over from the previous decade of overbuilding. This time around, we have too few homes. When we come out of the recession, home building should do very well. Housing starts should do very well during that time period. Can I go back to the mortgage interest rates? Because I'm just kind of curious. Where do you think they're going? I mean, they've obviously gone up. Do you see them falling back down? And at what pace? Great question. So my best guess is that a year from now, mortgage rates are a little bit lower than they are today. And so why a little bit lower? It's the confluence of two offsetting factors. Driving interest rates higher will be the fact that I think the market right now is underestimating how determined the Fed is and how willing the Fed is to raise interest rates. So I think, you know, the market is pricing in 50 basis point hike next week. I think that's going to happen. But I think we're going to see an additional 100 basis points in short-term rate hikes next year. And once the market figures that out, the rest of the bond market, I think long-term interest rates move up a little. And that's going to push mortgage rates a little bit higher than they are today. However, I also think that next year we're going to hit that recession. And that'll eventually start putting downward pressure on long-term interest rates. In addition, I think that right now, many mortgage investors are assuming that the recession, whatever occurs, is going to have a more negative impact on the housing market than will actually occur. I think, as I explained earlier, people are going to hold those mortgages dear. They're not going to default or go delinquent like they did last time around. So I expect mortgage spreads. In other words, the amount by which mortgage rates are higher than the 10-year rate to compress a little bit, to narrow a little bit over the next year. So the combination of all those factors combined is a little bit of narrowing. So I think a year from now, mortgage rates will be a little bit lower than they are today. Not substantially. Just, I was going to say, we're not getting back to 3%. No. Yeah. No, no yeah. time in the immediate vicinity okay. are we going to be back to 3%. So if you're thinking years. about borrowing an arm, probably a five or seven year arm probably makes sense because Absolutely. they maybe go down a little bit, but not substantially enough. If I were in the market today looking for a home, I would be looking for a short-term arm. Not as short as I can get it. Maybe, I think ideally three years. And I think your ability to 
refinance that, especially if we go through a session. Uh, like, you know, this is late 2022. So if you can refinance that in late 2024, maybe early 2025 to a fixed interest rate, uh, longer term. You don't want to be too short. You don't want an interest only loan. I think that's a little too risky. But like somewhere in the vicinity of three years, maybe five years if your bank doesn't offer the three years. Yeah, sometimes the, the difference in rate between a seven-year and a five-year, I, I feel like I've noticed is not that different. So yeah. there's a propensity to want to do the seven-year because you at least are locking in that. But sure. yeah, making sure you have that option for refinancing earlier. That would make sense, Jessica. Okay. okay, so I think we're about heading the end of our time. So Bob, is there any final parting thoughts you want to list- leave with our listeners? Yeah, I think you should bet on the Eagles to win the Super Bowl. That's Go birds. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was going to ask if you had a college football pick, but okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and, and I like Texas for the NCAAs. Basketball. Really? Yeah, basketball. I'm, Interesting I'm, pick. I yeah. like that. I like Texas right now. Do you do brackets? You may not oh, be allowed yeah. to say it, but yeah. Oh. I mean, for fun, of course. Right. Just purely for entertainment purposes. Absolutely. Do you do brackets? Purely <laughs> for entertainment. Yes. No we, exchange we, value whatsoever. No, no, we do a lot of entertaining with the brackets around here, too. Yeah. So. I, I put a lot of time and effort into my brackets, by the way. Do you really? Yeah. How do you usually do? Pretty uh, good? I, yeah, I've, I've won you know, multiples over time. You know, I'm usually fairly competitive. Here's the key thing to remember when you fill out a bracket. Key thing to remember. You need to think in terms of cumulative probability. Cumulative probability. Okay, so when you're figuring out, you're looking at the second round and you're thinking, you know, I think this team might get upset in the first round. Yeah, that, but probably not. But they might, okay? So if you really think that, you don't necessarily have to pick the upset in the first round. Just make sure the team that you thought would be upset in the first round doesn't win two games. Think in terms of cumulative probability. Think like, so also think when you get late in the tournament, think blue bloods and big conferences. Okay. You want the blue bloods and the big conferences, the ACCs. You want the SECs now. It's a much more competitive conference. You want the big East teams if you have them going deep. So, you know, big 12. Don't go with the Gonzaga to win it all because in the end, there are other teams that are doing well so far this year that I don't think necessarily will carry for like Houston. Excellent team. They might be the best team in the country right now. Like if you've watched them play college basketball there, it's like watching an NBA team almost, but they have a really weak conference. So they're going to go two months without really consistent competition. And then boom, they hit the NCAAs and maybe their first one or two games is easy. And then they hit the real competition again. And, you know, the ACC teams, Big East teams, they've been, they've been banging against each other for a while. Right. And those guys are ready. We like to make that point, too, to our clients and everybody else who is kind enough to listen to us that, like the cumulative probability, we look at the stock market. I mean, over time, it's undefeated, right? It's undefeated. So if you can have a long-term perspective on the stock market, you have a great plan and you, you are able to absorb these minor setbacks and make your portfolio as financially unbreakable as possible, you're essentially doing the same thing. Absolutely. So we talk about that all the time too. So Absolutely. Looking at the probabilities versus the possibilities. Don't try so, to time the market. It's time in the market. There will you go. Benefit <laughs> right. the vast majority well of investors the well most. Said. Well, I do want to take a second to thank our mutual friend, Marie McLugan, for setting this up. This is Bob's time with First Trust. And, and if anybody's listening to this and you know Marie professionally, please make sure you thank her for all the hard work she put into setting this up. And we really appreciate our partnership with First Trust. And we appreciate you making the time to come in here on a what I think is going to be a very busy Friday for you. So It's my pleasure to be here. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Bob. Thanks, Bob. Thank you.
The previous presentation by Monument Wealth Management LLC, Monument, was intended for general information purposes only. No portion of the presentation serves as the receipt of or as a substitute for personalized investment advice for Monument or any other investment professional of your choosing. Different types of investments involve varying degrees of risk, and it should not be assumed that future performance of any specific investment or investment strategy or any non-investment related or planning services, discussion, or content will be profitable, be suitable for your portfolio or individual situation, or prove successful. Monument is neither a law firm nor accounting firm, and no portion of its services should be construed as legal or accounting advice. No portion of this content should be construed by a client or prospective client as a guarantee that he she will experience a certain level of results if Monument is engaged or continues to be engaged to provide investment advisory services. A copy of Monument's current written disclosure brochure discussing our advisory services and fees is available upon request or at monumentwealthmanagement.com.